Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Rule of three. Where people who make funny stuff talk about something funny that they love. Because I remember as a kid thinking that's a really good old-fashioned gag, but it's also nasty. The actual VHS, this is clearly sufficiently important to me that this went to house moves as well. There is that, that joy and that slight fear as well about who's going to say what. Everything from airplane to bottom. From when Harry met Sally to the Muppets. Trying is good. Aiming high is good. Being ridiculous and not being afraid of failure is is good. I think that joke is so fucking funny. Again, I just think this is hysterical. It's beautiful stuff. Rule of three from Great Big Owl. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 53 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham, and I'm here right now with my posse, Jack Master Price, and the ranking Miss B. Big shout going out to the $3 Patreon people in the ass. They're getting paid in full on Patreon right now, getting the whole episode with no adverts. Come and join them, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Anyway, forward! Great single, number 23, The Adventures and Broken Land. This has gone up six from 16. It's Narada and Divine Emotions. the balcony with a load of lovely ladies. Wangs on some more about the adventures before giving the shortest of shrift to the next single, Divine Emotions by Narada. Born in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 1952, Michael Walden got his start as a drummer for the Mahavishnu Orchestra and a session drummer for Jeff Beck, Chick Corea and Jaco Pastorus in the mid-70s. 
He signed as a solo artist for Atlantic Records in 1975, by which time he had converted to Buddhism and was given the name Narada after a Vedic wandering minstrel by the New York-based spiritual leader Sri Chinmoy. He made his first appearance on the UK charts in 1980, when Tonight I'm Alright got to number 14 in March of 1980, and he followed it up with I Should Have Loved You, which got to number 8 in May of that year. But by the mid-80s, he was better known as a writer and producer, knocking out Who's Zooming Who for Aretha Franklin, jumped to the beat for Stacey Latishaw, the first Whitney Houston LP, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship, and We Don't Have to take our clothes off for Jermaine Stewart, as well as overseeing the soundtracks for Nine and a Half Weeks, Mannequin and Inner Space. He came back in his own right this year with his ninth LP, Divine Emotion, and this is the lead cut from it. It entered the top 42 weeks ago at number 30, and this week it's leapt six places from number 22 to number 16, giving him the opportunity to take a break from producing Whitney Houston's Olympic anthem One Moment in Time, jump on a plane to London, and pitch up in the top of the pop studios. And I've got to confess, once again, I have absolutely fuck-all memory of this. Yeah, nor me. It's, it's funny you say that, actually. When I saw the title of it, I thought it it was going to be to me what the adventures was to you mm. that you know something that completely passed me by until he started going ooh a little baby sweet darling that weird <laughs> bit at the start I thought oh god it's that song it's that song yeah. and and th- there's so many weird little vocal quirks in it like uh uh, I look at you and I go boing boing boing. Yes, and and uh, uh, and then, then then there's this bit there are these bits where he goes he goes very Larry Blackman out of cameo. He goes, yes. it's more than just a passing fantasy, <laughs> and like since I got the taste of that, that whole thing, and I thought, mm. oh god, yeah, it's that record where he does all that. <laughs> business i knew that i'd never heard this song before because any song that says i look at you and i go boing 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 <laughs> that, that sticks in your head well, yeah absolutely well, I, you know I, what a shame you didn't follow it up with up and down until i get a pain in me groin but you know well and it, he, i guess he's trying to be subtle about the fact that it's you know that it may or may not be about licking fanny <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, my mind was blown by the pronunciation of his name. Yes, we we only hear that at the end when when Mayo introduces it. It's Narada, as in Florida, because mm. it was always Narada Michael Wilder. Yes, it to was. Me. That's who he was. Yes, and you know, obviously, I, I was familiar with his late seventies hits. I, I mean, um, tonight I'm all right, but particularly I should have loved you. Yes, banger! I love that track. Mm. Um, I think at that point he was seen as a bit of a shaken. Jacko, yes, um, in the in the late seventies, and there's also an extent to which he is perceived because uh, in terms of being a, a producer and a songwriter, mm. as being a little bit of a, a Poundland Nile Rogers, mm. um, which would not be a diss because that's still a pr- pretty good thing to be. But yeah. when but when you look at the list that you just rattled off there, Al, of yeah. you know, who's zooming who, which I love that single uh by aretha um we don't have to by jermaine stewart and uh, yeah. you know all all, all all the early uh whitney stuff and stacy lattisaw um jumps yeah. the b and um the, yeah oh, let's he's, let's he's, ignore starship yeah but well hang on did he do uh, we built this city because that that's a, a a big tick in the credit box for me if, if he did because i love mm. that track but yeah i mean he doesn't mess about he's, he's no slouch that that no. is quite that is quite some cv yes it he, is. He, he's got going on there I've got to admit, I, I went into this um, 
performance without any expectations because I, I couldn't really remember it. And I ended it with a silly grin on my face. I, mm. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, fair play to him. He's 36 years old at this point, but he's got some moves. Yes. He's probably got some moves going. And his dancers, all of them uh, <laughs> wearing biker jackets and lycra shorts. Yes. So many leather jackets in this episode. I know. Uh, the, the, the combo of, of biker jackets and lycra shorts, I was going to mock it until I remembered it's exactly what I wore to Glastonbury 1995. Uh. <laughs> it's a sort of bike. It's a, you know, it's... Yeah. It's like yeah. a cyclist gang, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. I, 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 found, I found this... Um, a really joyful performance, a fun song. It's maybe even at this point that the sound of it is is maybe a little bit dated. Yeah, it's very un nineteen eighty eight, isn't it's, it? It's nineteen eighty five, isn't it? Yes, it is. It isn't really it? whiffs of nineteen eighty five. Yeah, but that, that's all right. I didn't. I it was all right. I didn't. The thing is that you know, like like we've been saying about um, what you see, the sort of tip of the iceberg of, of somebody's career that you see peeping through on top of the pops belies you know just a lot of other probably more interesting stuff that, that they've done. And I mean, this guy, holy shit, you know, his his, his CV is, is quite ridiculous. Mm. Again, it's very 1985 and you know I love Five Star, but that, the routine is very Five Star <laughs> and it's that sort of like um, warm-up aerobics kind of thing, you know. Yes. It's, uh, it's a little bit, you know, it's kind of street moves, but done in that slightly too sloppy way. Yeah. It was all right. I just kind of didn't really have any, have very much of a feeling about it at all. It just seemed a little bit bit sort of low end I don't know it just it was sort of it's like it's had the soul kind of squeezed out of it but it's not got that sort mm. of pop punch either so it was a bit sort of slightly sort of peppy cool in the gang type vibe but kind of cool in the gang down on their luck performing at Butlins you know as far as the presentation goes is this the beginning of the bring your mates ethos for dance acts on top of the pop <laughs> this is pretty much the template for every dance performance of the 90s i love it when people bring their mates in chart music terms it reminded me of when we had casey in the sunshine band doing give it up mm. and casey uh, yeah, casey yeah, yeah. was stood there on his own with no band just a few dancers around him and yeah it's that that yeah but yeah yeah you're right it kind of became the norm in the late 80s for dance records they've all got cycling shorts on but one lad's kind of like let the side down a bit by having a bit of fluorescent yellow striping on his shorts but you know maybe he's safety conscious he maybe he just wants to get himself seen yeah i had some of those i didn't really cycle anywhere oh i i did and i i ran straight into a wall and then stopped doing it but um yeah that was around this time actually that's that's not a nice story to tell (laughs) it's very painful um but um yeah don't do it kids but yeah i I had i had some cycling shorts like that with a big fat stripe down the side don't know why Mm. just it was what was available quite like the neon colors you know you should have had sarah written down the side (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's still there's still time. <laughs> so um, this whole business of um, Narada getting his nickname from Sri Chinmoy. Um, so I, mm. I looked into this, and uh, Sri Chinmoy um, taught taught his <laughs> followers to um, adopt a vegetarian diet, to abstain from recreational drugs, including alcohol, and to lead mm. a pure and celibate lifestyle. So when I read that, I was then trying to count mm. how many of those rules are being broken. <laughs> In, in his song, yeah. in his performance, <laughs> right down to the leather jacket. <laughs> well, they might not yes. be leather. You can't really well, tell I if suppose. they're actual leather. They might have been, Pleather, you know. Leather. I suppose if they if they weren't, they would have been sweating more. 
you know, because yeah. you do sweat slightly more in the sort of fake leather jackets, don't you? Maybe boing, boing, boing is a Buddhist mantra. I was going to say, where do the uh, spiritual masters stand on, on the human drive to boing, boing, boing? I mean, <laughs> it's like, do they embrace it? Do they say you must resist it? Yogic flying. You know that the natural law part you of what it is all to do in the early nineties. Yeah, you do go, you do go boing boing boing. Yeah. Well, the idea with yeah. that, I, I know a little bit about that. The idea with that is that's what you get if you if you get really really good at transcendental meditation specifically, mm. which is the thing yeah. that um, David Lynch uh, is is very big on. Um, yeah, you you get to a level of concentration when you master that. And you can uh, you can boing 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 yes all all day long well probably not all day long but you know across across a, a, a across a gym mat it's it's a little known fact that the original draft of the mantra nam yoho renge kyo was nam yoho renge kyo boing 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 <laughs> <laughs> you see now you brought all that up Simon about how many rules have been broken here what would have ended this performance perfectly three chimmoy coming out on stage on a white horse like Tripitaka and then he does the headache sutra on uh, Narada and all the dancers and, and uh, teaches them a lesson Al is this referring to one of those television programs that you've watched monkey. and I haven't right yeah I thought so now, have you ever seen monkey Simon no oh fuck it I could weep for you Sorry. That's your wedding present from me. <laughs> Fucking DVD box set. <laughs> yeah, monkey box set. <laughs> Perhaps the rest of chart music ought to turn up dressed as the cast of Monkey. <laughs> hey, I thought we were... You could be Tripitaka, Sarah. No, I thought... I don't know who I want to be. I'm not doing a, I'm not doing a costume change. I mean, the big decision there, who's going to be pigs there? All right, you'll, you'll, have a, you'll have a big head, gum-chewing meatloaf tart and be grateful for it. Yeah. <laughs> So the following week, Divine Emotions jumped eight places to number eight, its highest position. However, the follow-up, Can't Get You Out of My Head, only got to number 93 in September of this year, and he never troubled the charts again. Undeterred, he went back behind the scenes and helped knock out the soundtrack for Licence to Kill, Free Willer and The Bodyguard, as well as co-writing I Love Your Smile for Shanice and producing Sweetness for Michelle Gale. And earlier this year, he was named... Simon, do you know this? The drummer for Journey. Yes! Fucking Journey. I know. Don't stop believing. A complete... He's just rubbing it in now, isn't he? He's 68. What, that's a total WTF moment. Is he? He's 68 and he joined in May. So what, in the middle of lockdown everywhere, that's his new kick. Yeah, fuck it. Brilliant. He's, he's Narada. He does what he fucking likes. Yeah. He, and, and then he goes boing, boing, boing all the way home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Florida and Divine Emotions. They come the top 40 breakers this week on Top of the Pops. And you can tell that Wembley is just around the corner. Liverpool Football Club are in at 13. Anfield Rap. Mayo! Standing next to Reed in front of a big screen tells us that that was Narada, as in Florida, while Reed, as in children in need, whips us into the breakers section, starting with Anfield Rap, Red Machine in Full Effect by Liverpool FC. 
Formed in Liverpool in 1892, Liverpool FC were best known as an albums band, with 70 years waiting, E.I. Adio in 1965, and Sing Along with Liverpool in 1972. However, with the emergence of a new lead singer, Kevin Keegan, they finally put out a single in the spring of 1974, We Love the Cop, but it failed to chart. They finally entered the charts in 1977 when their cover of the Roubettes' We Can Do It got to number 15 in May of that year, but Keegan left the band. And the follow-up, the double-A side, Hell to the Cop, We Are Liverpool, failed to chart in 1978, leading to a wilderness period for the band, which culminated with their first single in five years, Liverpool We're Never Gonna Stop, only getting to number 54 in April of 1983. After their next two singles, Sitting on Top of the World and The Pride of Merseyside, failed to chart in 1986 and 1987, Craig Johnson, a transplanted Australian who was born in South Africa, steered the band towards a hip-hop direction. He wrote this single for the FA Cup final, which is due in two days' time. He cut a one-shot deal with Virgin Records, and he linked them up with Mary Biker of Gay Bikers on Acid and Derek B. And it's entered the charts this week at number 13. Well, much to discuss here, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, there's another football single in the charts this week, but it's not We Are Wimbledon by Wimbledon FC, which is standard crap football nonsense it's actually the worst song ever by the boss squad which was written by the people who gave us the chicken song by spitting image and it features alex ferguson billy bingham bobby gould bobby robson brian clough dave bassett george graham graham taylor jim smith jack charlton john sillett laurie McMenemy, terry venables and cheryl baker and it's a new entry this week Cheryl at number Baker. 88. Drop down to number 92 the week afterwards. Have you heard that? Yeah. it's Yeah. I actually, um, I, I don't know what this says about me or uh, the worst song or the Anfield rap, but having had to sit through Anfield rap and then listen to that, I, I did actually, I did chortle. It, it is a functioning comedy song by people who kind of understand, you know, how to write a comedy song or a light song or, you know, it's a sort of that sort of sophisticated stupidity and it knows what it is and it's not trying to be. Anyway, we're not talking about that, though, are we? We're, we're uh, No. We've got to lance this boil. <laughs> Simon, fucking hell, Prince and Liverpool. It's, this must be your most perfect top of the pops ever. Yeah, kind of. Uh, you know um, the real origin story of this single. It's not not been reported much, but um, the single was actually supposed to be produced by Rick Rubin with uh, Hank Shockley and uh, turntablism <laughs> from Terminator X and uh, guest raps from Rakim and KRS-One. Um, but, uh, but what happened was... Um, um, a shady Malaysian businessman handed Bruce Grobelar an envelope full of 50s oh. and, uh, and and he threw the recording. Oh. Nah, I mean, okay. Uh, tumbleweed, fair enough, fuck you. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, Derek B, okay, co-wrote it, Craig Johnston. Um, one production credit on there, well, first of all, it's Tough Audio, which basically was Derek B. He yes. probably didn't want his name to be associated with this shite so he's sort of using his <laughs> he's using his kind of sort of um, you know business umbrella term tough audio um mixed by howard gray now howard gray later found fame with apollo 440 so right. you know he went on to do shall we say more 
incredible stuff. Um, and for the first few seconds of this track, it does appear to be a credible effort. Um, they've basically mm. done um, a blatant photocopy of Rock the Bells by LL yes. Cool J, right down to John Barnes going, Liverpool FC is hard as hell. He says um, Arsenal, though. That's Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it was good enough to land him the, the New Order World in Motion Gig, yes, which is a low bar to clear, you might say, but <laughs> but um, it, it it does descend into farce very rapidly after that, doesn't it? Um, there's so many things to hate about it. For a start, um, all the scousers in the team, Uncle Tomming, like nobody's business, like <laughs> like jo- John Aldridge saying sound as a pound and all that, you know. And uh, yes, but most of all, for me. It, the, the most loathsome thing it's Bruce Grobbler right mm. with his big fucking umbro foam hands giant foam yeah. hands right yeah. are the mark of a cunt <laughs> and I say that with all due respect for Corey Aquino's people power movement in the Philippines and the work <laughs> of Kenny Everett and yes. indeed uh, Nick Cave who was spotted waving giant foam hands around in a panto audience in Brighton once when he was off what? from being <laughs> Nick Cave yeah um but apart, <laughs> apart from Corey Aquino, um, Kenny Everett and Nick Cave, giant foam hands are the mark of a cunt. I stand by that, right? Yeah, well, he's, he's essentially being set Meyer here, isn't he? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. And, and I know it's wrong to dislike people because of their accents, right? But That's, um, what this, that's the message of the song. Yes. Simon. I know, uh, but it's, it's just... Yeah, it's, I'd like to teach the world to sing brought up to date, isn't it? But it's fallen on stony ground with me, or at least Grobbler's has. Because I grew up, and you did as well, Al, at a time uh, when the white South African accent was associated with racism and arrogance. Mm. You know, I grew up with the anti-apartheid movement, and my, my mm. view of Afrikaners was informed by the Spitting Image song, You'll Never Meet a Nice South African. Mm. So um, it's just an objectively unlovely accent, I've got to say. And I'm sorry if any of our listeners... He's Rhodesian, isn't the, he, though? Well, I knew somebody was going to say that. Just hold your fire. And I'm, I'm, sorry <laughs> sorry. If, I'm sorry if any of our listeners have that accent, by the way. Now, before anyone says, or actually after anyone says he's from Zimbabwe... Uh, yeah, uh, he was actually born in Durban in South Africa. And, oh, right. And, okay. and it's basically the same accent. Um, it's, 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 it's nails <laughs> down a blackboard to me. Um, he basically sounds like Pete Morant from, uh, from Dante Fires in I'm Alan Partridge, if you remember that character. Right. <laughs> uh, who, uh, um, when he's trying to say, you can't, to Alan, says, you can't, you can't. Um, <laughs> uh, that guy. Um, so Grobbler, he had a really interesting backstory. Um, Colourful backstory. He was conscripted into the Rhodesia Regiment and Mm. he fought on the side of Ian Smith's forces against Robert Mugabe's ZANU. So basically fighting for white colonialism against black African nationalism. And Mm. all right, you know, obviously being fully cognizant of the fact that Mugabe's reign turned out to be filled with horrors. You still have to say Grobbler was on the wrong side in that war. But he was a conscript. We can't forget he was a conscript. And it'd be mm. really cheap to speculate, oh, he fucking loved it. Um, I'm, not, mm. I'm not going there. Um, but he killed. He was forced to kill. Um, he saw people die alongside him, you know, and he's spoken out about the trauma of that. So you've got to cut him a certain amount of slack for having a fucked up personality. He's a rapper who's actually has shot someone. He's not just lying and bragging about That's it. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that'd give you some cred. True enough. But mm. he's still, I would say, a hard man to like, a hard figure to like in, in football and, and, you know, the sort of public 
view that we get of him. Decent enough goal, eh? Stop fucking Forrest being in the FA Cup final that year. Yeah. I'm sitting there watching this going, oh, that could have been Forrest. <laughs> that could have been Brian Clough spinning on his head. The thing with Grobelar, for people <sighs> who don't know, um, is that... He was um, a character, shall we say. Yes. Uh, he was one of those uh, zany, wacky goalkeeper characters. It, it often mm. seems to be goalkeepers who are that kind of guy in football. Yes. Um, so he was known for his antics, such as doing wobbly legs um, in a penalty shootout to put off the, the, the opponents and so on. And, and I think he was generally sort of well thought of as a bit of a laugh um, mm. by most neutrals, by just by most people in Britain, um, until the 90s towards the end of his career when uh, he was implicated in a match-fixing scandal. Um, that was a short man, wasn't it, Simon? What What do you mean? Was he Malaysian? The, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Match yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sorry. the short man. Right, yeah. I think he was in the Ghetto Boys, wasn't he? Oh, no, that was Bushwick Bill. <laughs> there's a line where he says, uh, don't call me a clown, and then there's just a little snippet of him making a silly face. He's just doing mm. a face. Any more lip and you're going down. But yeah, that was the rhyme. Is this what counts for uh, you know uh, comedy in in football? It's yeah, it's a man with a face making a bit of a face. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, um, Al, you said you know Prince plus Liverpool. This is this episode is absolutely made for me. The thing is, um, I couldn't call myself a Liverpool supporter at this time. Ah, um, yeah, yeah, um, because I I quit being a football fan altogether in the mid eighties. Of course, it was just it got really horrible. Just everything from. Mm the tragedies that happened in the stadiums to, to the, the kits, to the hair, just everything about the whole vibe of football was just yeah. really unpleasant. And I just, mm. and I, I sort of felt as if being a, a, a football supporter and, and a Smiths fan, a sort of sensitive, <laughs> arty indie kid that I was at the time or whatever, was somehow incompatible. I couldn't be both. So yeah, I, but the enemy have said it's all right now, Simon. Yeah, but fuck the enemy. I was a melody maker person. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I did. I took 10 years off from football. Um, so I, I missed out on all this. To give you an idea of, of how far I drifted from football, and I, I have told this story on a, on a football podcast, one of the podcasts oh. I've cheated on chart music with, but I'm going to tell it anyway, Ugh. just quickly. So um, in, in 1990, when uh, England lost the World Cup semi-final to Germany, oh, yes. um, I, I was running the Ents in the student union at UCL, um, and we showed the game on the big projector screen, right? And I was stood there in the DJ booth, uh, waiting impatiently because we had a disco booked straight after in the same room mm. and the football was overrunning uh, because of extra time and, and penalties, yeah. right? So the moment Chris Waddle skied that penalty over the bar, I pulled the plug on the projector and put the music on. <laughs> and there were England fans there howling in despair and one of them ran over begging me to put it back on so they could watch the aftermath and have some kind of emotional closure or whatever. But I didn't understand that at the time. The, no. the, the, the emotions involved, and I, I refused. I mean, what an arsehole I was. I, I, wow. that's, what, what, but, what was the first song you played afterwards, oh, Simon? God, it was probably just something they would have hated, like, you know, some jangly fey indie thing by the Soup Dragons <laughs> or something like that. Uh, but that, that is how far I had travelled from football. You know, also, think, things like, you know, sort of national events like, like the the Hillsborough disaster, when that happened, obviously it affected me profoundly on, on a human level. But mm. I didn't feel it as a supporter of Liverpool or even as a lover of football, particularly, mm. because I'd forgotten what it felt like to be one of those. And and I yeah. um, I missed out on a lot, you know, by, by giving up football for 10 years, I, I missed out on um, this classic late 80s Liverpool team. You know, I, I missed yes. out on Beardsley, Barnes, Aldridge, 
Um, but the upside, of course, is I missed out on this fucking atrocity of a cup final song. <laughs> I mean, I I remember this from the time, uh, you know, because I listened to the charts and it was everywhere and it was played on the radio all the time. And I I hated it so much. I mean, I've never. That's the thing is that's what your experience of 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 not being a football fan is is my experience of not being a football fan as well in the sense of just the unpleasantness is the stuff that has kind of risen to the top and I can't really get past it you know I have enjoyed like watching world cup matches in crowded pubs and things but beyond that I've just I can't connect to it at all it's like and this is just exemplary of the the shouting I just hate that atonal chorus of hyped up male voices shouting about nothing that I can understand this kind of formless and it's men men are so wonderful they can be they can achieve such great things and i hate it makes me sad it makes me sad when they reduce themselves to just bellowing in the streets like musk oxen you know i i don't i don't want to hear it i don't want to hear it in in the street i don't want to hear it on my television i don't want to hear it on my radio it's it jangles my nerves i don't i do not like that sound and I didn't, yeah. uh, you know, it started, it started badly and went downhill from there for me. It's kind of benign. It's it's not hurting anybody, but I just, it was a slog to get through it in the same way that, uh, even the, the sort of little clip that, that we get in the breakers here. Um, it, it's not mean-spirited in the way that loads of money is, and it's obviously, it's, it's meant to be self-deprecating, but just to no end that I can see i mean it's just as well this wasn't i was was thinking christ i'm really glad this wasn't my introduction to hip-hop i might have missed out on on so much you know um the ghost of loads of money kind of peeps in even here saying you know about they're 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 having a having a little pop at, at john barnes and saying oh he's he's from the south and well they might have the jobs but we have the side yes like that's that's a good thing to yeah fuck you loads of money yeah you know, oh, mass unemployment, yay! I understand they went on to lose. Which oh, spoiler yeah. alert! Which suggests <laughs> maybe they should have spent this time training. I don't know, running, running up and down steps or something. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a, a, a cosmic justice, perhaps, that Wimbledon won the cup because this record is is a misfire on par with John Aldridge's penalty in the final. <laughs> well, it appears also that it's not about licking Fanny, which, uh, you know, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> I did the Can thing. I put in here now? <laughs> Can I have my say now? Yes, please. Because you're two just talking absolute bollocks. This is the greatest football song ever. No, sorry, it's right as a football song. It's fucking brilliant. Show your workings. I mean, I don't know if it's because I was so mentally into hip hop at the time, but if you look at it and how they've done it, it's just a perfect pastiche of hip hop. So it goes right. Starts off with "Rock the Bells," then you get the drum beat from "You'll Like It" by Funkadelic, which was. Best known as the drum break on I Know You Got Soul. Then you have Bill Shankler in the Malcolm X role, going on about wanting to build Liverpool up as a bastion of invincibility. And had Napoleon had that idea, he'd have conquered the bloody world. Then they sample the vocals from Twist and Shout. And how the fuck do they manage to do that? The Beatles ain't giving out samples at the minute. Good point, actually. If ever. I mean, you know, in a year from now, they're going to come down hard on the Beastie Boys. 
for sampling when I'm 64. Is it because is is it because it's it's not it's not a Beatles song originally? Is it you know maybe they... well they play the guitar from Twist and Shout, which is an Isley Brothers song, but the ah that's a, a lift from a Beatles record. Yeah. So the Beatles surely the Beatles would have had had to give permission for that. Yeah, maybe they did. So then then you've got you'll never walk alone, and they're taking the piss out of themselves. Because they're saying, oh, yeah, we're Liverpool, blah, blah, blah. But there's only two people in the the whole team who are Scousers. Everyone's dressed up in the (laughs) standard comedy Scouser trope. Yeah. And, you know, Harry Enfield must have been sitting off to the side looking at this video going, ah, Liverpoolians, tracksuits, they they do do, don't they? Mm. Well, you look, you are allowed to take the piss out of yourself to an extent, although you've got to be really careful when you do that. If you're going to talk about yourself as a member of, of... of a group you've got to make sure mm. you've got to remember the rest of the group you know because it's not about it's not just about you i've done this so many times and you feel like you're free to kind of you know take the piss but you've just it's it's a really it's a it's a delicate art form and uh mm. oh god i don't know it's just, it's just it's banter so, sarah fucking hell it's just banter <laughs> So much bants. It's me. It's my sense of humour. It's my sense of humour failure. I'm one of those humourless killjoys they have. <laughs> it, it doesn't appear to be about uh, uh, fanny licking. However, there does seem to be coded reference to dick. Yes. There is dick in there. Yeah. Which bit? Yes. Again, self-deprecating. Yes. I, I'm, Craig I'm... Johnson, I'm very big down under, but my wife disagrees. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, the contentious line, of course, is, I come from Jamaica, my name is John Barnes. When I do my thing, the crowd go bananas. bananas. God. Mm, because yeah. this is at the time when, um, you know, when he first signed for Liverpool and people were chucking bananas on the pitch. I mean, I suppose he's owning it there, you know. He's yes, he is. Fair enough, you know. And... It has to be said that John Barnes looks the coolest fucker in the whole country in this video, even in a late 80s football shirt. Well, I mean, it's it's not hard to be the coolest person in that video, to be, to be fair. No, no. He is the one who comes out of it looking like, you know, he's actually kind of fit the brief, you know, and, and risen to the challenge and yeah. seems comfortable in, in that milieu when the others are just dicking about. Mm. I agree with you that I think John Barnes maybe comes out of this with the most credit. And um, yes. but even then, it's not necessarily my favourite non-footballing John Barnes moment. That would probably be that isotonic mm. Lucasade advert. Do you remember that? Yes. He's so... Sheer hell. Yeah. He's so intense. He's going, it gets to your thirst yes. fast. Like that. And it's <laughs> it's quite a thing. It's, you know, all right, I, I know he's he's got to inhabit the role and really commit to it. But fucking hell, yeah. yeah he's given it some Lee Strasberg, you know, method acting there. and then for out of nowhere Brian fucking Moore drops some bars (laughs) (laughs) it's fucking brilliant they've won the league bigger stars than Dallas they've got more silver than Buckingham Palace no one knows quite what to expect when the red machine's in full effect Brian Moore says in full effect that's fucking brilliant and then he goes even better he fucking drops a a feel for you Chaka Khan bit (laughs) You're easily pleased, Al. Yeah, yeah. This is this is pretty desperate. I've got. Yeah, he he does the uh, Macca can. Yes, Macca can. Yes. We get some more Shankly X action, and then right at the end, Kenny Darkleash, looking like a children's television presenter, does the Oh Yeah bit in Live at the Funhouse by Run DMC. That was fucking brilliant. I mean, look, because it's a football song, you know, it's got a lifespan of like one week, maybe two at most. So I didn't hear it that much. But every time I heard it, 
at the time. I fucking loved it. And if I hear it now, it just encapsulates like two weeks in Istra. It's quite interesting to imagine what the recording sessions must have been like because you would think that some of these fairly deep and obscure references to real real hip-hop were, were maybe beyond the Liverpool squad. So it would have been Derek B and his sidekicks basically saying to people like Kenny Dalglish, can you just go, oh yeah, at this moment, can you, you know, yeah. and, and don't, don't worry about why, just, just do it, right? <laughs> and just convincing them that it'll be funny to some people. Well, to one person, Al Needham, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> if it reaches just that one person, then it's all been worth it. They're standing in front of uh, loads of graffiti, including dog leash, red hot funk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if only Kenny dog leash had rapped on this, man, that would have been amazing. That might have changed my view of it slightly, because, you know, <laughs> I, I, I worship Kenny dog leash the way that some saps worship Princess Diana or whatever. He's, you know, just this absolute <laughs> god to me. But um, I, I was surprised that, that you rate this record higher than, what was the Nottingham Forest one? Was it Paper, paper uh, We got the whole world in our yeah. hands. I mean, no, that's, that's, on a different, that's on a different level, you know. But as a, as a non-Forest right. football song, this is the best. Yeah. The, the one thing that, that would pain me around about this time is that um, the lens of Steve Nichols' sunglasses has popped out. <laughs> Which brings back horrific memories of being in the market square. He was a bit of a wild card in that video shoot because uh, he he got a bit out of hand. And when uh, when Bruce Grobelod does a headstand on the football, he goes in and kicks him in the head deliberately. <laughs> he didn't like Grobelod, so, so there you go. To him for that. He knew what was coming. So the following week, despite a disastrous gig at Wembley Stadium supporting the crazy gang, Anfield Rap soared 10 places to number three, its highest position. The crazy gang have beaten the Culture Club. Oh, imagine if they'd done a Culture Club tribute on this video, man. Fucking hell. I would be all over that. However, on the very day this episode was broadcast... Johnson asked to leave the band a year ahead of the end of his contract in order to look after his ailing sister. Sean of their songwriter, the group drafted him Peter Howitt of Bread for the follow-up, Kenny D, the pride of Liverpool. But by the time it came out in April of 1989, they had other things on their mind and it failed to chart. However, a year later, frontman John Barnes spat some bars for England New Order and helped get World in Motion to number one for two weeks in June of 1990. So, um, a number three hit and a number one hit probably makes John Barnes the most successful English rapper. Yes! In, until, like, Dizzy Rascal or something. And Liverpool would have one more hit in 1996 when they linked up with the Boot Room Boys with a Z on the end, and took Pass and Move, It's the Liverpool Groove, to number four in May of that year. By which time, Craig Johnson kept in touch with his hip-hop roots by inventing a football boot named after Ice Cube's third LP, <laughs> The Predator. <laughs> well, I'm rapping now, I'm rapping for fun. I'm your goalie, the number one. You can take the mix, don't call me a clown. Any more lip and you're going down. Number 31, Belinda Carlisle. Belinda, if you're watching, please don't keep phoning. I've left the phone off the hook. We've already covered Belinda Carlisle in chart music number 46, and this, her sixth solo single, is the follow-up to I Get Weak, which got to number 10 in March of this year. 
It's the third cut from her second LP, Heaven on Earth. It entered the charts last week at number 42. It shot up 11 places this week to number 31. And here's the video, directed by Peter Kerr, who began his film career making videos for Cabaret Voltaire, Clock de Var, Scritti Polite, Killing Joke and Depeche Mode. And is currently best known for his video for Bananarama's Venus. And we get as much of that video as I've just said about Belinda Carlisle just there. 22 whole seconds of a nice, expensive video. Yeah. It's a nice video, though, isn't it? It's, it's really nice, yeah. It's, Looks um... like a new opening credit sequence for Home and Away. <laughs> it's very on the on the nose, very Route 1 in that it's it's on a beach, you know, yes. circling the sand and all that. But, yeah, it's uh, very, very beautifully filmed. It, yeah, it could be the opening credits to Dawson's Creek or something like that. Yes. It's, very, it's got that kind of... Uh, uh, that sort of gold, golden hour glow to it, hasn't it? Um, mm. Yeah, it's mm. nicely done. I really like Belinda Carlisle. You know, um, yeah. I, I I saw her live. Uh, I've seen her a few times actually, but she was um, supporting Culture Club in Brighton a couple of years ago, mm. and she just seemed to be having the best fun. And it was just a beautiful thing to see. You know, sometimes you get people who had a few hits in the eighties who it really hurts them, it wounds them that they are no longer taken seriously as an artist. Yeah. And and that they are seen as sort of a slightly cheesy relic from the past. And they sort of almost overbalance and, you know, try try and uh, sort of um what's the word, you know, to um overcompensate is the word I'm looking for. Um trying to do um, a very tasteful acoustic album or something like that and, and try and come across as sort of tasteful and, and mature and real and legitimate. Belinda Carlisle was having none of that because the thing with Belinda is she obviously didn't come from a cheesy pop background to begin with. She started no. off, as you mentioned on a pre- previous episode, as Dottie Danger, the drummer with the germs, was it? Um, yes. Which is, uh, Dottie Danger, one of the greatest punk names uh, ever. And of course, you know, the, the Go-Go's were a, a decent new wave group. So she actually, it, it was almost um, the sort of typical career trajectory of an 80s pop star in reverse, in that she did all the credible stuff to begin with, and then thought, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to be a pop star. I, yeah. I suppose a bit like people like, you know, Adam Ant had yeah, done yeah. earlier on in the decade. Mm. So, uh, you know, she, she's got all that out, out of her system. She had no... She, sort of need to prove a credibility to anyone and it was just a real joy to see somebody sort of romping about the stage almost as if she was taking part in her own Belinda Carlisle tribute <laughs> concert uh, just yeah. for fun just for fun you know and uh, it was just really heartwarming I, I, I don't know if I'm really doing it justice but she just seems like a really likable person um circling the sand not particularly great song it's all right um I really like obviously Heaven is a place on earth, absolute banger. Uh, I, I also really like Leave a Light on um, as well, but uh, mm. this one it's a bit, meh, it's all right. Um, but she, you know, she's got a nice voice in that kind of bubblegum Stevie Nicks way. <laughs> and um, even though she's only on for twenty two seconds, she's just so beautiful. She's just just a, a lovely um, visage to look at on the screen, you know, and. Uh, Mike Reed, I mean, are we going to talk about this? Yes. Yeah. Fuck me. Um, I mean, he makes some comment that implies he's shagging her or that she wants to shag him. He goes, yes. if you're calling, don't bother. I left the phone off the hook. Like, look at the fucking state mm. of him. Yeah, we, we know you've left the phone off the hook for Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, tenders. <laughs> We did that. Um, we did Heaven Is a Place on Earth in uh, the November '87 episode, and Mike yes. Reed did the same gag. He, it's a oh, running yes. gag. Sake. It's a running shag gag. 
Yes. And he thinks it it's that whole kind of thing. It's like, well, you're it has the patina of self deprecation, but it's just just squicky. Yeah. Just don't do that. It's it's yes, we know yes, we recognise that Belinda Carlisle is attractive. Can you just let her be attractive without kind of mm. commenting on it in this weird way that makes it about you? What if he's named his washing machine after Belinda Carlisle? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're okay with Prince talking so sexy that she wants him from uh, his head to his feet. But Mike mm. Reed, not so much. You no. Know, it's it's very much, it, it depends who's doing it. And I don't yes. think Mike Reed is allowed. In, in all of these cases, you've just got to know what you're doing. You've got to, yeah. you know, and if you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. We don't want to think of him sending or receiving a booty call from Belinda. Just no. please know. <laughs> it's not about <laughs> looking funny. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm. I'm just. I, it's like a curse now. It, it's like a fucking well, curse. Well, it's not me that's bringing it up. Episode. So. I know, but I can't help myself. <laughs> but I. I love this. Actually, I. I remember. I loved it at the time. Like probably mm. even more than like recognizing that you know that thing where you recognize that one track is better than another track, but you still prefer. Mm. You just have a preference for the other one. I just. I loved it. Mm. It's so kind of evocative of, of California in that way. It's And, and so, mm. yeah, obviously the video fits it perfectly. It's just mm. such a lovely kind of L.A. sunset of a song. And mm. like Thomas Dolby keyboards and that kind of massive, chiming, resounding production. I love, I love that. It's gorgeous. Mm. It's just such a sparkly, pretty and kind of slightly moody pop song. <laughs> I actually have the words Bubblegum Stevie Nicks written down here, which, which only yeah. just occurred to me. On, on this listen of this song. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, this would not be out of place as a kind of extra track or a B-side on Tango in the Night. You know, yeah. it, it's got that sort of vibe about it. And she does have this great kind of bubbly throatiness. There's a slightly kind of witchy feeling about this. It's a sort of incantation. Um, yeah, love it. Love it. What did Belinda Carlisle mean to you as a 10-year-old? Late 80s seems to be a time where women singers and women in bands were allowed to just be musicians and singers and they they didn't have to do a sex as much as they would uh, a few years previous and a few years later. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you you sort of, uh, by the age of 10, you're already, uh, you've already probably internalised a lot of, a lot of bullshit about, women that you're it's probably still there it it sort of encrusts the inside of your skull and you never fully get rid of it spend the rest of your life just chipping away about you know what what uh what am i supposed to be as a woman how do i inhabit this body etc but i mean at the time i probably would have just thought she was a lovely kind of magical american fairy person you know Mm. she's 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 like a lovely pixie and i think (laughs) i found her quite wonderful you know, in in a very in a very basic way, just like wow, she's you know a proper pop star, and she's got such gorgeous hair. And you know, apparently, I mean, it, it's kind of nothing to do with anything. But um, Simon, you were saying about how she just seems to be really enjoying herself. Um, there was a very um, I might have mentioned before there was a very oily um, kind of thigh rubbing review in the Telegraph. Which fortunately, the Telegraph does that wonderful thing with the paywall where it's kind of like the idiot fade. Where somebody right. style, you get like the first few <laughs> lines, and then it just kind of fades out, like it's kind of going away. You don't have to listen to it, <laughs> and and it's like, yeah, I've 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 heard enough. Thanks, 
Thanks, Neil mm. McCormick. It's uh, oh god, yeah, yeah I thought going, it'd be him. Just going, Chief ooh, Rock. Um, oh, she's so, ooh, she's so lithe and, <laughs> but it's love. It, it's nice that um, apparently she's still. It's always kind of a bit of a thrill when someone just looks exactly the same as they did when they were younger. There's just mm. like you feel like they deserve it. You know that whole thing about yeah. oh, everyone, you know, by the age of fifty, a man has has the face that he deserves and stuff. Yeah. It's kind of different, kind of different with women. No. But I mean, it, it, don't say that, Sarah. <laughs> it's true. You've got to face <laughs> face up to it. Um, but like, <laughs> look at yourself in the mirror. What have you done with your life? <laughs> but there is a thing where you get that sort of vitality in some people that seems to keep them. That seems to confer youthfulness upon them because they just haven't really paid a lot of mind to um you know the kind of bullshit about how how one is supposed to age and especially as a woman you know you're supposed to age gracefully what does that even fucking mean and this is you know um obviously madonna being kind of the 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 everything of that you know she she's been but people have been saying that she's too old since she was 30 so you know Mm. um Mm. But yeah, this was a that kind of another high point after Alphabet Street, and um, it's such a roller coaster. This this episode, it's just like, oh, oh god, this is awful. Oh, thank god. Oh no, what are you doing? Oh, hooray! Yeah, and it's not even over yet. Fucking no, hell. yeah, no spoilers. But the worst is yet to come, isn't it? Fuck <laughs> me. The following week, Circle in the Sun soared 19 places to number 12, and two weeks later, it got to its highest position, number four. The follow-up, Mad About You, only got to number 67 in August of this year, but she'd write the ship a year later with Leave a Light On, which also got to number four in October of 1989. And she'd go on to notch up 14 top 40 hits, three of which made the top 10 throughout the first half of the 90s. And your bad young brother is Derek B. And at 26... We'll catch your attention like a news flash and spread our sound like an infectious rash. Born in London in 1965... Derek Boland began his career as a mobile DJ in 1980 before linking up with local pirate radio stations Kiss FM and LWR and eventually starting his own WBLS. In 1986, he joined the dance label Music of Life as a part-time A&R man, and when they went over budget on a hip-hop compilation called Death Beats 1 and didn't have enough tracks to finish the LP, he stepped in to record Rock the Beat under the name EZQ. Encouraged by the reaction to the track, at a time when British rappers were thin on the ground, he went back into the studio and put out the single Get Down, which got to number 87 in October of 1987, which led to an American deal with Profile Records, run DMC's label. This is the follow-up to Good Groove, which got to number 16 in March of this year, and is the second cut from his new LP, Bullet From A Gun. Not only has he already been featured on Top of the Pops as a producer of Anfield Rap, despite being a West Ham supporter, he's also supporting Public Enemy next week at the Electric Ballroom. In the meantime, this entered the charts last week at number 36, and it's jumped 10 places to number 26. 
Well, my dear, so there's been British hip-hop records since December of 1982 with Christmas rapping by Dizzy Heights, but Derek B's seen pretty much as the first British rapper. I mean, definitely the first British rapper on top of the pops, if you don't count Captain Sensible with what, which I certainly don't. <laughs> or Adamant with Ant Rap. So, yeah. British hip-hop. Yeah, I mean, he was the first one that was spoken about um, with any kind of credibility. It's it's a shame he was retrospectively seen as a bit of a joke character. Um, I think his his name didn't help mm. being called Derek B. It it just sounded like it sounded like a sort of um, a David Stubbs piss take of Eric B or Eric yes. Rakim. You know, um, Derek is such a profoundly British name, and just a, sorry to any Derek's out there. It's just kind of a very uncool name. Um, yeah, but you could say that about Malcolm. Yes. You know, if a black nationalist leader called, came out called Malcolm X, everybody would be taking the piss out of him and doing that bloody Vic Sinex advert at him. I suppose so. But it's, it is it is a hurdle to surmount. Or, or Keith. Yes. Cool Keith. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> I mean, it is an obstacle. You know, it's, it's something that yeah. you have to surmount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think this came at a time where most British hip-hop, or maybe all British hip-hop, I think you, Al, and Neil could correct me on this, but um, was certainly trying to sound American. There, there wasn't yes. a sort of a, a unique or uh, indigenous British hip hop voice, uh, if you will. Um, certainly that, that, that I that I was aware of. Mm. This record, it, when it came along, there, there was just a feeling of it's pretty good for a Brit. There was always that caveat to it. I think. Yes. That's as as somebody who wasn't particularly immersed in hip hop at the time, although I did fucking love Public Enemy. Um, and the Beastie Boys and Run DMC. All that. that was my shorthand for this. It's it's all right for a Brit. Mm. Mm. You know, understandably, I guess he he did. You know, he he got shit for kind of rapping in in that sort of slightly put on, not quite transatlantic kind of. You know, just just it, the thing is that I suppose it does lend itself to kind of an American accent. A lot of things do. A lot of pop does. It's mm. just that's kind of that seems to be the default. And it just sort of yeah. fits and it just Cause, suits Yeah, because when a British singer says can't instead of can't, that's a really big deal. You know, like when, yeah, when Brian yeah, yeah. Ferry did it in Love is a Drug, it's like, oh, he, he sang it properly. That's weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing, is it's a thing, isn't it? It's like it stands out when actually it's mm. a lot easier. It's not laziness. It's just that that seems to be appropriate for the form a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, is is just to, to, to do it that way. Mm. So... You know, you can't blame it. And also, people do things to... You do what you have to do to kind of elbow your way in to mm. a space from which you're, you, you've you traditionally been excluded. And people... It, it's kind of in the same way, um, to you know, women using male pseudonyms and stuff. It, it's kind of... Um, I, I think it's called... I don't know enough about this to talk about it, but um, code switching is when you change mm. your it's not a good thing necessarily but it's um it's when you you moderate your uh your presentation um when you're in a different arena when you're in a different space and you want to be you know you mm. you just kind of might sand down the edges of yourself in order to be accepted or you you sort of speak the language of the place that you're in you know and um there's yeah. so much obviously so much kind of uh discomfort and baggage and, and, and stuff that goes along with that. A lot of stuff, you know, I mean, then you get into like masking and everything where you're really just pretending to be someone else in order to get where you need to go or in order to just stay where you are without being, you know, 
without being chucked out or shunned. Mm. It hasn't really aged well, this track. It sounds quite sort of soft, doesn't it? And quite quite basic and, mm. and kind of flimsy. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of weight to it. Um mm. and it's like it's a little bit awkward. It's a pop song. Yeah. But it, you know, there's a slight awkwardness to it and but there's so much kind of baggage inherent in it that, you know, it's actually doing it's actually wearing it quite quite lightly. Um mm. so yeah, it's whatever it's difficult really because whatever the quality of his music you like respect is due to him as a pioneer because you know he he was kind mm. of sticking his neck out um and it's completely understandable you it's always easy to look back at, at people and go well you could have just done this and you know it would have been okay and it's like well you know you probably wouldn't have fucking got anywhere so you, you have to understand it in its mm. context but it is the the irony as well of him saying i'm no imitation i'm the real mccoy which i wonder okay. if it was a sort mm. of self Slightly self-deprecating line. When you were a British rapper around about this time, you, you had to insert at least one line where you said, you know, I'm actually British. So um, Rebel MC, you know, yes. is he a Yankee? No, no I'm, I'm a Londoner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in here, it's like, he says, uh, I'm paid in pounds, not in yeah, dollars. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Bit more of a brag then than it is now. <laughs> there's so much, oh, yeah. yeah. It, there's so <laughs> much about, this is the thing, it's even like the vernacular and everything. It's all kind of, it all comes in that American package. And just the word dollar and the idea of a dollar and the dollar sign, all of that shit is so much cooler than like, oh, the pound, the British pound. Mm. It's it's just so kind of stiff and, and kind of dorky in comparison. The, yeah. There are so many little things like that that just make you think, yeah, obviously you're going to kind of tilt in this Americanized direction. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anyone sense. can really blame him for that, really. Because I'm just trying to think of kind of recognisably British voices on hip-hop records. Weirdly, one of them would have been Dave Pearce, the DJ, at the start of a Public yes. Enemy album. Yes. Um, oh. You know, when he's uh, at the very start of... It's Countdown Time Again, yes. isn't it? At the start of yeah. uh, It Takes a Nation Million to Told Us yeah. Back. It's that gig at Hammersmith, I yeah. think, uh, where he's getting the crowd whipped up. But yeah, hearing a London accent in the context of an American hip-hop record was really fucking weird. But then, th- then you had um, London Posse. I love the early London yeah, Posse right, stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah, there was always a bit of a, a bit of a sticking point with the accent and everything. But when mm. it comes to the actual musical side and the remixing and all that kind of stuff, you know, fucking cold cut, um, that greedy beat, beats and pieces. That was fucking brilliant. Yeah. You know, we yeah. could we could we could do it as long as we kept a gob shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go through the sample. So you've got the when the Levy breaks drum break. Uh, it's my thing by Marva Whitney, the uh, you know the bring the noise bit. Yeah. A bit of it's just begun by the Jimmy Caster bunch. You got the big beat by Billy Squire. Uh, you got UFO by ESG. So essentially, the standard ingredients for a hip hop record yeah. in 1988, but with one addition: Prince. The oh yeah bit from Sign yeah. of the Times by yeah. Prince. Second appearance of Prince on on the program. Yeah, yes. it's it's, uh, it's funny um, uh, the the Billy Squire big beat uh, sample there because of course that was uh, how Dizzy Rascal broke mm. through with Fix Up Look Sharp with mm. with that yeah, that yeah, beat. Yeah. So it's 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 funny really. You know, a, a generation later, the the foremost English rapper using that same sample. Yeah, I mean the Prince samples. Hopefully, he got it fucking cleared. <laughs> because I think a, a hundred thousand dollar hit uh, is going to affect Derek B in 1988 more than it would um, Arrested Development a few years later. Yeah, I think his bank account's going to be in the minus, isn't it? Yes, yeah, probably. <laughs> but also, this is a time when you know Prince was still frowned upon quite a lot in 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 the hip hop world. Mm. 
you know, rock the bells. You've hated Michael and Prince all the way ever since. If their beats were made of meat, then there would have to be mince. <laughs> as far as the video goes, again, we don't see a lot of it. It's a bog standard in a studio with a white background with yeah, some yeah, decks yeah. and some mates. He gets kissed on the cheek by uh, this blonde girl, which would have been, you know, would have upset a few dads. Yeah. And he's got a big audio dynamite cap on because apparently his manager was wearing it at the time and he just nicked it off him. Well, that was the other thing. It, you know, hip-hop was kind of crossing over into the indie or rock or alternative world through bands like Big Audio Dynamite. Yes. And to, and to a lesser extent, um, Age of Chance, which mm. meant that people with maybe closed-minded uh, sensibilities were sort of opening opening up thanks to, you know, Mick Jones. Uh, well, Mick Jones had been at that already in The Clash, of course, with, you know, yes. Magnificent Seven and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that Derek B was pushing an open door, but he's pushing it a slightly... Ajar door with a lot of people. Mm. So the following week, Bad Young Brother soared 10 places to number 16, where it would stay for two weeks, its highest position. The follow-up, We Got The Juice, would only get to number 56, and he never troubled the chart again, easing back into production and remixing work with Curiosity Killed The Cat, Was Not Was, and Assorted Rappers. Alas, he died of a heart attack in 2009, at the age of 44. How you do it? Breaker Breaker at 28. Real Mustard from Prefab Sprout, the king of rock and roll. County Durham in 1977 by Paddy and Martin McAloon, the Dick Diver Band changed their name to Prefab Sprout a year later. It wasn't until 1982 when they released their debut single, Lions in My Own Garden, Exit Someone, on their own label, but they were picked up by Kitchenware Records a year later when label owner Keith Armstrong heard their second single, The Devil Has All The Best Tunes, at the Newcastle branch of HMV that he managed. They first tickled the arse of the charts when Don't Sing got to number 62 in January of 1984 and the follow-up, When Love Breaks Down, only got to number 89 in November of that year. When it was reissued in April of 1985, it only managed to get to number 88. However, when the second LP Steve McQueen came out to a rapturous reception from the music press in June of that year and the first two cuts from it failed to break the top 40, it was put out again and this time it went to number 25 for two weeks in November. This is the second cut from their latest LP from Langley Park to Memphis and is the follow-up to Cars and Girls, which got to number 44 in February. Like all of Steve McQueen, it's been produced by Thomas Dolbe, who couldn't commit to the whole of the new LP as he was working on the soundtrack of Howard the Duck. It nipped into the top 40 last week at number 39, and this week it's jumped, frog-like, 11 places to number 28. So yeah, Prefab Sprout. The the previous single, Cars and Girls, I was shocked that it wasn't a chart hit, because I heard that all over the place. To me, it was a little bit steely Dan, that song. Sprouty Dan. 
if you will. But they've gone full on pop for this, and it's paid right off, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I love Cars and Girls. Um, that oh, yeah. that maybe is the one for me for a Prefab Sprout. It's mm. you know this kind of contemplation of the romantic dream espoused in in Bruce Springsteen songs, and that was quite a sort of daring thing for a notionally indie band to do at the time because Springsteen was this kind of icon of mainstream American culture and they were finding yeah. they were finding beauty and romance in in his in his songs and uh, and um I, I really admired them going out on a limb for doing that. And I yeah. I adore Prefab Sprout. Um I yeah. I think almost everything they do and have done is is sublime. And mm. um if anything this song, um King of Rock and Roll is underrated I think, yes. and, and and what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to accuse people of liking it for the wrong reasons. Okay, <laughs> yes. right. So um, the things that people like about this song, um, first of all, it's got that parping, farting, rubbery bass line that people seem to mm. love, right? Okay, but then you know uh, the other thing, the main thing is, you know, uh, whenever there's a sort of BuzzFeed article or something like that of the worst mm. lyrics in pop history, and yeah. it's usually you'll get. Uh, Desri with that thing about the ghost and some toast in the park and all that. Yeah. Things. And you will get Hot Dog, Jumping Frog, Albuquerque. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, is... Well, well, to a lot of people, that's what the song's called. It, uh, Yeah, they think it's it's the Hot Dog, Jumping Frog, Albuquerque song. And, and of course, it's about licking Fanny, as we all know. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I just think, okay, fine. It's got a hook that people can latch on to. Great. And it's it sort of paid off in that it's probably their best known song. Um, yeah. But um, the lyrics are, are just, it's, it's, it's a killer opening for a star. It goes, mm. all my lazy teenage boasts are my high precision ghosts and they're coming around the track to haunt me. So that, <laughs> that is just really vicious and cutting and it's scalpel like. Mm. And then the next one, the dream helps you forget. You ain't never danced a step. You were never fleet of foot. Hippie, Just hippie. The way he pauses and goes hippie there. Oh my god! Yes, it, it's brutal. It's this brutal cut down of not even um, a has been so much as a never was a kind of older swinger in town character. Mm. And if if you can't relate to that, then you've lived a charmed life. And I envy you. And I can relate to it. I can identify more than I'd like to put it that way. <laughs> you know, it's about a one hit wonder, isn't it? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the hot dog jumping frog Albuquerque is the is supposed to be the song right. that made him famous and his only hit. Oh, and so it's quite messy then. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's who he is. He's he's this washed out singer who's had one hit and he's lived off it. Yeah, and I I suppose it's almost like Don Estelle going around shopping centres. Well, I think in his lofty gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I think Paddy McLoon is one of those pop artists who's really keenly aware of. The kind of lifespan uh, um, of of a pop artist uh, uh, potentially, mm. and and um, how fleeting it can be. In a way, um, uh, and we almost don't use the M words, but in in a way that the Morrissey was mm. um, certainly on on things like Rubber Ring by the Smiths or Little Man What Now is just just keenly aware of the, of the kind of um, the mortality of 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 fame and, and of stardom, and. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they only just made it into being pop stars in the first place. You mentioned uh, that it took a couple of efforts to get when uh, Love Breaks Down into the charts. I yeah. think I had it first time around because I'm so cool. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that song really hooked me in. And also Farron Young. And um, 
the Steve McQueen album. I just think it's it's one of those albums that, uh, for a start, it's uh, one of the greatest albums ever made. I really believe that. Certainly one of the greatest mm. of, of the 80s. And also, it's got one of the greatest side ones of an album. Uh, like David Bowie's really? Low, in that sense. It's Whenever I reach for it, I tend to put side one on and maybe not even play side two because it's just impeccable and flawless. That that mm. that side of a record, like what's going on? Then I'm right, like that okay. with what's going on. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Another good example, and I I don't think they ever really went off the boil. Everything they've done in this sort of post fame years really works for me. Uh, I really love the album Andromeda Heights. Um, yeah, which again has has got one of these songs that's very self aware about being a pop artist. There's a song called Electric Guitars, and it goes, "We were songbirds. We were Greek gods. We were singled out by fate." We were quoted out of context. It was great. <laughs> that is a fantastic lyric. And yeah, I mean, ev- everything everything they've done um, right up until, you know, the, the last few years, I, I completely adore. He's never made a bad record for me, Paddy. Um, mm. This video, they're really laying it on thick, going for the kind of pop market, aren't they? It's quite gimmicky. Yeah. They've got an actual yeah. frog waiter, poolside waiter <laughs> in the video. Paddy's in his gold Elvis suit. There's dancing hot dogs all of that. Yeah. It's all playing it for the lols. And fine, yeah. fine. But yeah. all I'm Clearly saying... not shot in New Mexico, though. No, no. <laughs> no. Um, but all I'm saying is that, yeah, fine. They were going for it with a big hook and a jokey video to reel people in. But there is way more going on in this song mm. than meets the eye. Yeah. Yes, it, it kind of, um, I mean, what we were saying before about like how things land, you know, the, the intention of, of, you know, if you're doing doing something satirical or, or um, yeah, kind of sidelong, and there are going to be people who don't get it. And sometimes that matters and it's going to have kind of, you know, unpleasant resonance. And sometimes it doesn't matter. And this is one of the instances, I think, in which it doesn't really matter if people didn't get what they were going for here. I mean, th- there are several comedy or novelty or purportedly comedy records in, in this episode. Mm. But um, there's also that I, I was thinking about the difference between, you know, comedy and which can be quite forced when you try to cram it into a record or try to build a record around it. But then there's playfulness, which is a, a really rare and great quality to have yes. in your music. Yes. I mean, Alphabet Street is a playful record, perhaps perhaps even frolicsome, you know, and this is sort of, it's it, it's not that it's daft, it's because the, the intelligence in it is, is, is obvious, but it's got that energy about it which connects with people at, in various different ways and you can enjoy it on different levels. I'm sure there'll be people who enjoy it just because it sounds, sounds funny, you know, mm. and without really any recognition of, of what it's saying. I mean, yeah, I, I get why... Um, why prefab sprouts music rubs some people the wrong way um i don't really care but you know i I see that it's like there's a certain forthright kind of earnest even though there's there's stuff going on and there's layers of irony and stuff but there's it's very there's a sort of cleanness about it musically which i think people you know some people just aren't interested in or it doesn't connect with them but i i love pretty much everything they've done it's clever without being snotty you know, it just is mm. clever and it's okay to, to be clever. It's okay to not be a twat. It's okay to not be an idiot. Um, and to, to to just the precision. In, there's this kind of emotional songwriting precision where every every syllable is is, is, is weighted just so and it lands just so. Yeah. And mm. it's 
there's like a sort of acupressure thing that happens in your brain when you hear something like Cars and Girls. And it's there's some songs that I can't I can hardly think about without just misting up a little mm. bit. Some lines, you know, um someone stops for directions, something responds deep in our engines, we have oh, all been burned. Yes, yes. Fuck. <laughs> Doesn't it you know and the way that it because it, it's that's quite an obvious thing. It it's quite a sort of the the in someone else's hands that would have been like a really laboured kind of cheesy car metaphor yeah mm. but but in 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 the hands of paddy McAloon, it it's searing and um it makes you you know yeah it really really connects with you in this deep way um i mean yeah like the most some of the more recent stuff like this decade or well, last decade fuck <laughs> um mm. like uh crimson red that's a brilliant album mm. Mm. yeah um and you know with with the song grief built the taj mahal yeah. Which is just the story of, of, of how the Taj Mahal was built yeah. um, in, you know, from from a, a vision beyond the grave. And it's like, fucking hell, who who does this stuff? You yeah. know, that's what a great idea for, for a song. And it's like, you know, under three minutes or something and just beautiful. And and then there'll be like a, a caper about the best jewel thief in the world carrying a bag, a bag marked swag. Just <laughs> 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 just gorgeous. And it's all. Yeah. So it's yeah everything all of human life is there basically in pre-rock trap and um, yeah I I will be somebody was talking the other day about like brace yourself and talk about like who who is who are you going to really miss when they go and I'm going to be I'll, I'll be I hope he's going to be around for for a good while yet but I'm really going to miss Paddy McAloon being in the world. Yeah, yeah. Just to ruminate a little bit further on the thing of of Prefab Sprout being very self-aware about not exactly being a failure, but n- not being the success that you might have hoped. In this song, particularly the King of Rock and Roll, when he goes, "When she looks at me and laughs, I remind her of the fact I'm the King of Rock and Roll completely." And when he delivers that, it's it's just balanced perfectly. That you're not quite sure the percentages of Paddy mocking this guy or really feeling empathy mm. for, for this this sort of slightly pitiful character who was something, could have been a contender, damn it, or maybe was at one point. Mm. And it's if it was outright mocking, it, it wouldn't be half the song it is. Yeah. He, he's just got that way of, of just getting inside a character and, and writing in that way that that, that uh, you can kind of see both sides and throw off your mental chains, to quote yeah. <laughs> And also, the thing about that line is, unlike most people, he doesn't go into an Elvis impersonation, which is the most obvious thing to do, which is what B.A. Cunterson did in Knocked It Off, remember? Well, yes, but he sort of does the king of sort rock. Of does right yeah, but just end. enough of it, just enough of yeah. an allusion to it. Yeah. You know what? You you reminded me when you said that they rub people up the wrong way. Sorry, was it you, Sarah, that said that? Yeah. 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 I just remembered around the time I joined Melody Maker, Paddy McAloon's nickname in Melody Maker was Paddy McNance, like he was a Nancy boy for What? I don't know. Yeah, for, for writing these sensitive songs and Ugh. and and his and his music being a bit kind of fey or whatever. And yeah, in Melody Maker, like any time you saw him written about it's Paddy McNance. I think the Stud Brothers were the ringleaders of that. Right. And it was just very much this kind of lads, lads, lads club. That mm. that was a an element of Melody Maker I didn't like. And I kind mm. of thought, look, right, you know, if um 
if if being into prefab sprout means I can't be in your gang, I don't want to be in your fucking gang. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because there was a, a, a column, regular column in uh, Melody Maker at the time, Nance of the Week. Right, yeah, exactly. It's all a bit homophobic and, yeah. Mm. I'm not even going to say different times because I was there and I just, <laughs> at, at, at the time, I just felt this is just unpleasant. Mm. Well, 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 the two things I want to chuck in is I used to know the third Macaloon brother. Oh, my God. The one who wasn't in the band. He was in my year at university. And he was a fucking lovely bloke. Really nice bloke. It went round. Pretty sharpish. Probably the first week that he was Paddy McAloon's brother. But I never brought it up with him. He never brought it up to anyone. And that that was it. And uh, yeah, if you're out there, Mick, I hope you're having a nice life. So Paddy never dropped round for a cup of tea or a pint or anything? No. Sadly not. And the other thing is, is every time I do an episode of chart music, I'm always scrabbling around for what I was doing in that precise month. And when I picked on this episode, I just thought, oh, fucking hell, what, you know, what, what was I doing? As soon as this song came on, I knew instantly everything came back to me. Because <laughs> at this time, I was playing baseball at the weekend. I was in the local team, the Bestwood Pirates, played third base. Fucking loved it. Great sport, baseball to play. And one of the lads in the team, uh, he had a three-year-old son. And after we'd done training or a game, his missus had come round with their lad, still in his push chair. So he must have been about two or three. And he would say nothing. The only thing that would come out of his mouth is him singing Hot Dog Jumping Frog Albuquerque. (laughs) And every time he did it, everyone, regardless of age or what music they're into, would sing it with him and get him to do it. (laughs) And I I instantly went back to that moment. And, you know, if you're a songwriter and you can get music journalists to wang on about you and about how brilliant you are for, like, 15 minutes and get a three-year-old kid to sing your song, then you've essentially won at life, haven't you? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's almost the bitterest of ironies that Paddy McAloon is best known to the general public for a song about a one-hit wonder. But, you know, thank God for when love breaks down. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Like, I feel like you need a sort of content warning on, on it, even the titles of yeah, these. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, my heart. <laughs> this is one of those things where um, you want them to be appreciated by, by as many people as possible. And they, yeah. you know, I think they are much loved and, and much admired. Mm. But this is the, the least of, of what they were capable of, really, or what mm. he's capable of. Mm. Um, I, I think I probably, um, to be to be perfectly honest, I probably got quite tired of this at the time because it was played so much yeah and i'm not a big fan of the squelchy bass and that used to irritate me a little bit but you know that's i I have a better appreciation for it now especially now it's not it's not on radio one like you know Mm. every day but um what else can you say really hail hail paddy mcaloon yeah i mean a few months after this he was at one of paul mccartney's parties and mr you can do it right now please (laughs) came up to him (laughs) and and told him that that this song would be to him what my dingaling was to Chuck Berry. Yeah, he had a point. Mm. Paddy McAloon took it on. You know, if it was me, I'd turn around and go, well, I've done a better song about frogs than you, you cunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair point. So the following week, the king of rock and roll soared 14 places to number 14. And the week after that, it made it to number seven, where it stayed for two weeks. Their only top 10 hit. 
The follow-up, Hey Manhattan, only got to number 72 in June of this year, and they have to wait another three years for their next top 40 hit when Jordan the EP got to number 35 in January of 1991. And they'd have intermittent, moderate chart success throughout the 90s until they dissolved as a band in 1997. All right, and Paul Crazy Youngsters, I know what's coming next, and I, I just can't face it at the minute. So I'm going to step back. I'm going to wrap some cling film around my head. I'm going to put myself back in my box, and I'm going to come back hard tomorrow. Anyway, I'm Al Needham. He's Simon Price. She's Sarah B. You're you, and we are all pop crazed. Chart music. Great Big Owl.com. Hello. I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of swat. (laughs) 